and welcome to On Focus, brought to you by the Focal Therapy Clinic, where we connect you with issues facing men diagnosed with prostate cancer that are little known, less understood, and often avoided or even ignored. Prostate cancer is now the most commonly diagnosed cancer in the UK, and with this somber fact comes a multitude of challenges and opportunities. I'm Claire Delmar. Joining me today is Tim Dutteridge, consultant neurologist at Southampton University NHS Trust and Focal Therapy Clinic. Tim is a recognized innovator in advancing both the imaging-led diagnostic pathway for prostate cancer and minimally invasive treatments, including focal therapy. We're going to discuss how these advances are giving rise to more choice for patients and how these choices impact patient recovery from prostate cancer treatment. Tim, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. So um, on that note, if you can give me some idea about how recovery times vary across treatment types. Sure. Well, it's obviously yeah one of the big things that people ask. And when I'm describing the different treatments, uh, there's a lot of things that we go through. But one of them is how the treatment goes, how long you spend in hospital and what people can expect with their recovery. So when I'm talking about uh, surgery, uh, we talk about normally a, a, a short stay in hospital where people uh, may stay for one to two nights. Uh, I'd say most the vast majority, I'd say, is staying just one night in hospital. Uh, but they do obviously have, uh, as well as the catheter, which stays for one week, they have uh, a degree of surgical pain you know, from the small incisions. It's, it's not usually too bad, but uh, people have to take, um, you know, some degree of painkillers. And we're, we're very keen to avoid um, opiate type painkillers. It's one of the big problems in the United States where use of opiates is very common. And in the UK, opiate painkillers for this operation really is not utilized. And, and most people, I'd say, cope with just paracetamol and ibuprofen. Mm-hmm. Um, those kind of painkillers are normally used for a few days and people are definitely more restricted in their uh, physical uh, activity but uh, they might for instance just be limited to moving around the house and uh, maybe short walks outside and and as weeks go on that improves and I normally tell people that they can get back to full physical activity after about six weeks and during that time yeah, anything involving abdominal muscles you know cycling on a normal bicycle can be uh, more strenuous for the abdominal wall. And certainly anything that involves heavy lifting or um, straining, you know, should be avoided until six weeks. Then the other aspect of recovery, obviously, is the continence. Uh, when people have had surgery, uh, when the catheter comes out, normally the first problem they encounter is stress incontinence. And that can range an awful lot. I mean, I'd say probably two in 10 of patients having surgery who've got some degree of nerve sparing might actually be pretty dry from the, the word go, but it still leaves the majority of people having some degree of leakage. And that can be just a, a few drops or you know, needing uh, one to two pads a day or something, but it can be very extreme with almost no control of the urine. And that is more typical in patients who had really wide excision surgery mm. uh, or when they've got um, anatomical factors that might lead to that. So I think that incontinence is something that uh, men expect after surgery. And they also... Uh, understand you know that it can take on average three months to be free of pads but after about a, a year it's still sort of 10 or 15 percent uh, using pads significantly and and that definition of using pads is one that's a bit kind of sort of uh, smoke and mirrors because actually many of the men who we define as not using pads the definition includes the, 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 you know, them being able to use a, a safety pad. Mm. And when this was looked at closely by Caroline Moore's group, and we contributed to that, um, they actually found that being truly pad-free was actually one year 60% of men. So you know, that's 40% of men still using 
some form of pad for incontinence. Mm. Um, so I think that continence recovery is obviously a big thing. Yeah. Um, and then sexual function recovery is a very tricky one to s- describe because with surgery, it really is dependent on the pre-surgical function uh, and what degree of nerve sparing is undertaken. And that's normally tailored to the individual person's cancer location and and the bulk of disease mm-hmm. and so it's difficult to give a sort of individualized risk very often but as a rough estimate i'd say people who are having bilateral nerve sparing who have good function beforehand uh, can expect you know probably about a 60 percent chance of regaining erection function plus or minus the use of viagra type drugs uh, and so that's a kind of rough estimate but obviously as soon as you start taking nerves away then that will become lower and lower. So how does focal therapy compare to um, these other yeah. forms of treatment in terms of these definitions of recovery? So focal therapy is substantially different. It's a day case procedure and people might stay overnight if they have you know, social issues that require that. But from a medical point of view, don't really need to have any inpatient stay. And people can go home after a few hours from the anesthetic. They'll go home with a catheter and we keep the catheter in mainly because of a bit of prostate swelling that goes on after the treatment. And that can limit the flow of urine and cause retention of urine if we didn't let things settle down first. Mm. So people tend to leave the catheter for five to seven days, I'd say, typically. During that period after discharge, there isn't really any pain. So people don't typically use painkillers. There is a risk of urine infection, which is probably greater uh, if it weren't for the fact we give people antibiotics usually for a week. And that's partly because of the combination of the presence of dead tissue after it's been treated, the presence of a catheter, which mm-hmm. means that um, you know there's colonization of plastic usually when we leave it in the body. And so the presence of that next to the dead tissue would be an infection risk. So mm-hmm. once those antibiotics are finished, urine infections can still occur, but it's not, I kind of say, a really common problem, probably another 10% uh, of those patients having to have further antibiotics, something mm-hmm. like that. And what um, about continence um, that you referred to earlier? Yeah, so incontinence is really not a problem. In fact, th- these kind of issues and sexual function and urinary symptoms have been studied quite carefully by the UK uh, Focal Users Group. And uh, there's a publication by Catherine Lovegrove and many of the co-authors from the focal users group and she showed that for this group of men uh, leak-free continence which is the most sort of stringent definition of continence this group of men started off uh, with 77% of men saying that they were leak-free and by uh, after the treatment that went down just to 72% so uh, it's it's interesting actually that already you know uh, quite a lot of men having some degree of leakage. But when you looked at use of pads, uh, the group started off with 98% being free of using pads, and that dropped just a little bit to 94%. So really quite uh, little impact on urinary continence function. Do you think, though, that patients are, are typically informed on, on these kind of recovery metrics, if I can define it that way, when, when they're offered treatment? Do you think they really understand, like, you know, the use of pads, for example, is almost a metric that you're using? It's extremely important that men having surgery are told about incontinence. It's a very common risk after surgery. And I think generally people are told about that. It's difficult perhaps to really explain how things improve over time. And so that's why I tend to use this sort of measure of the proportion of people who become pad free or just using a safety pad over the course of time and trying to explain to people that there's no set time for them. It's just how the group that we've studied progresses over time. And mm-hmm. I think if you explain that, people do get the idea that uh, 
we can't give them a set time for them and it's 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 a bit of an unknown it could be quick it could be slow they just have to accept the uncertainty of that whereas with focal therapy it really is you can be really quite confident that they will experience very little change in their in their continence function so what do you think are the most effective ways to inform and educate patients on recovery I mean, do you think it's former patients and their testimony, or do you think it's evidence-led studies like the one you just referred to, or a combination of the two? Yes, I think it's a combination of the two. And and the, the trouble, of course, is if you wanted to introduce your patients uh, to you know a fellow patient, if you like, um, the temptation would be, of course, to pick the ones who've done really well. And on the other hand, if you were to introduce them to patients who've done not so well, they might get an overly pessimistic view. So that's why I think it's important to try and explain in broad terms the spread of expectation. You know, what's the best case, what's the worst case, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. what's the sort of the average expectation. And I think that's quite useful. The other interesting thing that was uh, found in Dr. Lovegrove's paper was that there was a slight, if you like, worsening of some symptoms like urinary frequency. And that was very, very modest after focal therapy. And so the IPSS score, which is what we measured to do this, went up very modestly to 1.2 points, which is, you know, after three years. So that's a really minor change in urinary symptoms. And typically with surgery, what we see is something sort of similar in the beginning where frequency can be a problem. But after a while, uh, again, that settles down. So people's bladder habits really do stabilize quite nicely after surgery as well. And, and that compares maybe with radiotherapy, where interestingly with radiotherapy, men can get a worsening of their urinary symptoms in terms of frequency and urgency and not storing urine well, but they don't get so much stress incontinence. And that's one of the sort of differences between surgery and radiotherapy. So I guess the main take home message is that radiotherapy can make the bladder storage elements problematic. And funny enough, it can affect the bowel as well. So bowel storage, and, and I think that's unique to radiotherapy that the bowel is affected. And so do you explain this in the way you're doing here to, to patients when you're um, informing them of the choices they have? Yes, it's very important because it, as well as talking about how successful a treatment is, you need to talk about the journey that they go through mm-hmm. and the kind of short-term complications that they can experience, you know, things like infections, thrombosis, bleeding, the kind of things which are temporary but also then the longer lasting things which you're sort of stuck with as a functional change to how the pelvic organs work. And I think Mm -hmm. those things Mm -hmm. are important in the long term. And then you've got to try and help patients to tease out the what's important to them overall. Is it the short term experience or is it the longer term experience? Mm -hmm. Or is it, you know, it's usually a combination of the two, you know, weighted uh, one way or another. So it's a really complicated discussion. But I think if you spend enough time breaking it down into these individual components and saying, you know, this is the journey with this domain over these three different types of treatment. And, and, and you just work your way through it. Patients can clearly look like a rabbit in the headlights, you know, completely bamboozled by the information. But after a while, when they've had a chance to digest it and you supplement that with some reading materials, uh, you know, eventually people, I guess, work out which kind of treatment suits them best. And I guess you can distill it down to a, a bit of a trade-off between those who understand the uncertainty of focal therapy in the long run, because we are obviously leaving some tissue behind. And sometimes that's tissue, which we know will have some low grade cancer that needs monitoring. Mm-hmm. And so when they choose focal therapy, they understand that there's a risk of repeated treatment being needed for that. And also about, you know, treatment failure in the area that's been treated itself. And requiring a repeated ablation or maybe surgery and so they trade that off with the short-term very obvious advantages in improved 
continence and urinary function and sexual mm-hmm. function. And so there'll be those men who feel that they prefer the earlier recovery and a treatment which seems to be very good and durable with some degree of confidence, but not absolute certainty. Yeah. Uh, but, but there'll be other people who <clears throat> prefer, if you like, the s- sense that there's a body of opinion that feels that surgery and radiotherapy are more tried and tested and have you know, established long-term outcomes. And they feel that they'll accept shorter term disadvantages because they feel that the cancer will get the best treatment possible in terms of eradication of the cancer. And there's a group in between who can't resolve, as I mean, I can't resolve that, that difference. And at the moment, we're trying to randomize into the Kronos A study to help to resolve this uncertainty. And for those people who, like me, feel that, you know, how can you make this uh, difficult choice between a treatment which it may be better or maybe it's the same and a treatment which has, you know, lower side effects in the short term. I, I think randomization within the study is going to be a really powerful thing for us. And, and they can, you know, the patients will know that they'll get a good treatment, whichever arm they're in. So mm-hmm. I'm really enthusiastic about, about this Kronos A study. Tim, thank you so much for speaking. It's, uh, it's been really informative and um, we'd like to hear more maybe next time about the Kronos trial. So thanks again for coming. My pleasure. Good to speak to you. Now, further information on Tim Dutteridge is on our website, along with a transcript of this interview and additional interviews and stories about living with prostate cancer. Please visit www.thefocaltherapyclinic.co.uk. Thanks for listening. And for me, Claire Delmar, see you next time. <laughs>